Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Thomas H. Henriksen, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is, Should We Worry About North Korea? It was recorded on August 3rd, 2016. Uh, the topic today, as you can see, is should we worry about North Korea? And I'm going to be one of those speakers that tells you right away, yes, we should worry. But a little bit like Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, let me count the ways. But before we get into counting the ways of uh, how we can be concerned about North Korea, I just want to give you a kind of thumbnail sketch. I know a lot of you import, have important things on your mind, things you've been thinking about. And so this may be a refresher course, or it may be something new. But uh, here are some very brief, this is a very brief 101 version of the current state of North Korea. And it was really begun in the, in the twilight time of uh, World War II, 1945, was set up. Uh, this Korean peninsula, of course, had been a separate entity for centuries. Spoke a different language in China, different language in Japan. Uh, had been invaded several times, hundreds of times, by, by uh, China. But nonetheless, its current state begins in the shadow of World War II. Uh, a communist part in the north, a kind of military authoritarian regime in the south, which eventually turned into a, a, a democracy in the 1980s. Uh, the leader in 1950 was uh, Kim Il-sung, who was considered at that time, and uh, until his death, he was a great leader. Uh, and he was a resistance fighter, guerrilla fighter, mostly in Manchuria, but he became a Soviet agent, a Soviet man, and so he was installed in North Korea uh, in, in uh, 1943. Uh, next major event, of course, was the Korean War, when the North blundered, miscalculated, and invaded the South, tried to conquer the South. It had the blessing of Joseph Stalin, uh, who was a backer, uh, and at this time, China had just fallen to communist control in 1949. Uh, the Korean War was an expensive war for America. We lost 33,000 troops there. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as the Forgotten War, but 33,000 troops is a lot, considering the Afghanistan campaign and the Iraq campaign came to a little over 7,000 uh, American personnel. So it was an expensive war. For, uh, North, for China, it probably cost around 200, 300,000 troops when they invaded uh, at, at the end of 1950. And it also solidified China's feeling toward Korea, which I'll come back to later. This one is very important to China. Uh, next, it cost probably 2 million lives in South Korea. It was a horrible war for them. It was a conventional war. When the war ends, it ends with an armistice, not a treaty, an armistice only, which means the fighting could resume at any time. And to divide this Korean peninsula, it was stretched across from east to west, a DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Uh, and that zone is demilitarized, but on each side, the north side or the south side, it's heavily militarized, considered the most militarized border in the world. And a state of hostility still exists between North and South Korea. Uh, in 1953, uh, thereabouts, the North Koreans decided they wanted a nuclear weapon. 
Now, there's many reasons for this idea that they would get a nuclear weapon. One would be uh, that they could stand up better to the West, that also there was the idea perhaps Eisenhower administration had threatened China that if it didn't negotiate some sort of ceasefire that the uh, United States would turn to nuclear weapons. No one really knows. But nonetheless, they got their initial boost in nuclear capacity and also missiles from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union gave them their, their reactors, also gave them versions of a Scud missile. So that's where the origin of it comes from. Uh, I just put this last point in about Juche because people come up and ask me, what is Juche? Well, this is their contribution to Marxist-Leninist doctrine. Marxist-Leninist doctrine often has the kind of permutations of a, of a religious, a theological uh, um, characterization to it. So their embellishment on this was Juche. Juche boils down to very quickly self-reliance. You have to be very self-reliance. And for what that means for the North Korean people is you have to suck it up when things get bad. In other words, if you're going to starve, you're going to starve. If you're going to eat boiled grass or try to catch sparrows to survive, that's too bad. That's self-reliance. That's Juche. This is uh, the regime. It's very, in fact, it's never been happened before that we have, in a sense, a dynasty from uh, Kim Il-sung uh, to Kim Jong-il and finally to the current one, Kim Jong-un. Uh, I mentioned just a few things under them to give you uh, a snapshot of what happened. The most important one is 1985 NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which, interestingly enough, the Reagan administration pressured Gorbachev to force North Korea into accepting it, and they did. They not only, not only accepted the NPT, but they also ratified it in their version of a parliament. So they acknowledged and accepted it, and it just, I'll come to the major points again, but basically it, it outlines the idea you won't proliferate nuclear weapons, nuclear capacities only for nuclear energy, not for warfare. Uh, there were other agreements that they signed, 1991, the Declaration Agreement. This, was, this joint declaration was really between the North and the South, outlawing nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. The South does have a nuclear cap capacity. It has about 25 nuclear reactors, but they are only for energy. Uh, finally, there was a nuclear uh, uh, frame agreement that was passed in the Clinton administration. It's a horrendously complex agreement. I can go into it in detail later. But we, the Clinton administration, made an agreement with North Korea, but we, United States, in collaboration of Japanese and South Korea, would provide nuclear reactors, light water nuclear reactors, in return for a cessation of building graphite nuclear reactors, which are more proliferation possible than the uh, light water reactors, and there were some other parts to it, too. This agreement really falls apart uh, completely in uh, early Bush, uh, w, George W. Bush administration in 2002-2003 collapses. Uh, going on to Kim Il-sung, I mentioned the Sunshine Policy. This was not his policy. This was a policy begun by a South Korean politician by the name of Kim Jong-dae, who uh, wanted to open up North Korea and wanted a so-called soft landing. But if it was going to collapse, they didn't want to go through what had happened in Germany, uh, but they would, in fact, have uh, some economic growth in the North, which is very stagnant. 
and they would have some capacity to be, the two countries could come together, avoid the problems that uh, West Germany had with a collapse of East Germany. Uh, the paperless agreement was an agreement, a, a disastrous agreement, uh, that uh, Dick Cheney, vice president in the George W. Bush administration opposed. It was a policy that the United States would take North Korea off a terrorist list and that it would provide other benefits, remove it from some of the sanctions in return for uh, them blowing up their cooling tower, which they did, uh, but also not engaging in further nuclear capacities. And the reason I, I called it is a paperless agreement. There was no agreement, no written agreement. And in a book I wrote that Colin mentioned on American Rogue States, I quipped with something that lawyers say, that verbal agreements, verbal agreements aren't worth the paper they're written on. <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> uh, it wasn't worth anything, and they're back to the old square again. Uh, let me move on. I'm going to cover these quickly because I want to get into some more uh, other things. They do have a nuclear capacity, a nuclear bomb. There have been four tests. Notice that three of those tests have occurred during the Obama administration, uh, one in the George W. Bush administration. These tests have been kind of not totally successful. They've been tests that uh, they tend to look like they fizzle. That's the good news. And then a lot of nuclear physicists came along and said, wait a minute. They're not so bad as they look. Because after all, they're not big tests. They're small tests. And what they're trying to do is perfect a small nuclear weapon which can be placed on an ICBM, intercontinental uh, ballistic missile, and then therefore fired at great distances. And until you have the miniaturization, which is very tricky. In fact, the Chinese copied their miniaturization from us. Remember the Win Ho Lo case back uh, in the 1990s, which Wen Ho Lee stole the nuclear capacity from Los Alamos laboratory and smuggled it to China, but got away with it because of a botched uh, it, uh, investigation. And nonetheless, they're working on this. The idea that nuclear weapons, how are they going to deliver them? Well, some people have joked and said, well, they could drop them off the back of a turnip truck. And that's probably the capacity right now. They don't have the capacity to shoot them on missiles. But they're working on it, and it could, they could get better at it. Uh, this is a continuation of the first worry, growing nuclear missile capacity. These figures that are down for these various types of missiles are wildly uh, exaggerated. They're actually propaganda. Many of their missiles fail. They explode after launch, or they explode on the launching pads. They don't work. But they had two today. We went up this morning. I was looking at my mail, and I got a note that two went off uh, in North Korea, 8 o'clock, 8 their time, and one blew up shortly after. But the other, first time ever, reached Japanese waters. So they're getting better. They're perfecting these. But there are a variety of these. One of the Taepong Dong 2s did make it about 3,000 miles before it blew up. But they're not, they're not sure-footed sure on this, but there's lots and lots of practice. Uh, let me go on. Here's another scenario. The idea that somehow that they would sell fissile material to terrorist groups for money has not been ruled out. Now, fissile material is what I mean by that is radioactive material, which is packaged and could be packaged into what we call a, a dirty bomb. In other words, it's not a nuclear explosion where you're triggering a nuclear chain reaction, but what you're doing is taking a 
a small amount of fissile material, radioactive material, and encasing in some sort of explosive. Could be C4, could be Semtex, it could be TNT. And it scatters. And the, the bad thing about the scattering is that people can die from radioactive poisoning, that you contaminate an area, perhaps a quarter of a square mile, or maybe even a mile, and that's going to cost a lot of money to clean up. And it's very scary. The very psychological use of nuclear, of anything, scares people. So it hasn't been ruled out. It hasn't been done. They're not the only concern on this, care, uh, on this situation. There's also Pakistan uh, and other places where nuclear capacity is not secured. But on fissile material, a lot of countries have fissile material. We have it. We have it in our laboratories. We have it in some of our medical facilities. So the idea that North Korea is not alone in, in doing this. Next, worry number three, uh, the sale of nuclear components, nuclear technology to Iran and so on. They have sold missiles to Iran, usually SCUDs. SCUDs are Soviet missiles which have been enhanced. Now, the Iranians have their own internal capacity, but they were always glad to get help. The most important item on this particular slide is the one in 2007 when the North Koreans built an reactor in Syria. Uh, this was ongoing. Uh, and the Iraq, all the satellite pictures uh, captured a facility that looked very much like that at Yongbyon in North Korea. And what happened was, luckily, the Israelis did us a huge favor. And on September 6, 2007, they blew it up. Uh, and it seems to have worked. But, that's, uh, but nonetheless, this is another fear that they will sell it. They're, again, they're not the only ones that sell this sort of thing. There was an AQ Khan network in Pakistan that did similar things. This is an important slide here. Let me talk to you a little bit about what I mean by uh, implosions. No one really defines this. They mean if the regime implodes somehow, collapses, then we could have a lot of instability, maybe a civil war. Implosion implies to me that there'll be a coup d'etat. It might be by the military, or it might be a faction within the Communist Party that our present leader in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, would be overthrown. He might be killed. Uh, he might, his family might be killed. It could cause a huge problem. And what happens? A lot of countries might think they have to rush in. That would be, for example, South Korea might feel it has to rush in, or it might be China. I think the United States would be very leery and moving north of the 38th parallel, the, the DMZ. But this would cause a lot, of, a lot of problems. Now, if you look at this map, it's unique. There's nowhere else quite like it in the world. Because here we have the intersection of all the great powers, China, Russia, United States, and two major powers, Japan and, and South Korea. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It's the only place they all come together. Now, they're, they're come, they come close in Afghanistan, for example. China does have a border in, in Afghanistan. And Russia does not have a direct border, but it has a border through its former republics, such as Uzbekistan. And there are also other nasty players in, in, in Afghanistan, next to Afghanistan. Iran is there, of course, Pakistan, and India, another major power. Uh, and there's also a convergence now in the Mediterranean uh, because the Obama administration moved so slowly, the Russians intervened last September. And so we, now we have an intersection of the Russians, the United States, and Syria. But this is unique, that this sort of crossroads would occur. Now, the map is not the scale. I had to move Hawaii a little bit closer so you could see it, and I had to move Guam. So I took a little license there. 
uh, to show you how this happens. Now, I want to go through something with you because this is crucial to understand the centrality of Korea and Asia. We already know about the Korean War of 1959-53, but I want to take you back about 150 years ago to when China was under huge threats because the European powers led by Germany, Japan was not a European power, and Britain were beginning to encroach upon Chinese sovereignty. They were setting up what they called treaty ports. These were uh, spheres of influence in China in which the European powers would uh, control exclusive trade zones. They provided some policing, and they also built some infrastructure, mostly telegraph and railways. And so China was poised to be carved up, much as Africa had been carved up by European colonial powers. The difference was there was also Japan, which was a non-Western power. But as you know, Japan went through a huge industrialization, a modernization, westernization, in the latter part of the 19th century. So Japan began to encroach too. And guess where they all ended up? In the Korean Peninsula. And the Korean Peninsula had two wars fought over it. And I'm going to talk about it very briefly, but it shows how important this peninsula is and how it can figure in the future. The first war was 1895, and it was fought between Japan and China. Both had wanted influence in, in Korea. Both were trying to, to control the, the uh, monarchy in Korea. At that time, it was one country, not, not divided between North and South. And they were trying to have an exclusive control. The, the, the Koreans always said to the Japanese, we can't sign a treaty port agreement with you because we're not really a true independent country. So they would use that excuse to try to keep the Japanese out. If you look at this, the reason the Japanese wanted this, you see that how the Korean Peninsula points at the Japanese uh, islands. So the Japanese always considered Korea a dagger, a dagger pointed at Korea. So they're always apprehensive about it. So they wanted to control it. And the Japanese were industrializing, becoming an imperial force, as we well know from World War II, in the late part of the 19th century. Well, war spark what took place. The Japanese and the, and the Chinese got into it in this, in this Sino-Japanese war. The Japanese won. And what did they get for their winning? Well, they got a lot. They got Taiwan, the island of Taiwan became a Japanese colony. They also got the Pescador Islands, which are close to Taiwan, and former, uh, on, uh, what, it contains, what it pertains to North Korean Peninsula was the fact that they also got an opening into, into Korea, which they began to take advantage of. A few years later, 1905, it's the Japanese versus the Russians. The Russians were engaged in a huge movement to its east. This is the United States expanded across the continent going from east to west. The Russians, since Catherine the Great, the end of the 18th century, expanded eastward and southward into the Caucasus. In this sweep, at the end of the 19th century, they had started a, a railway, the Trans-Siberian Railway, which went all the way across and ended up in Vladivostok on the coast, uh, right above where, that, where it says North Korea there, part of, in Russia. And the two got into it. The Japanese struck the, the uh, Russian Navy at uh, Port Arthur. And then the, the Russians replied by sending their huge Baltic fleet all around the world to the uh, Shumi Straits. And they were annihilated by the Japanese. The Japanese won both wars. And 
That shows you how this played out in the past. It doesn't mean very much to us, but you can bet your last won, your last dollar, that the Chinese military authorities, the Korean military authorities, the Russian military authorities, and the Japanese all know this war well. This has not left their thinking. And so we have, in a period of 110 years, we in fact have three wars fought over Korea. Uh, I want to come to the end to sort of wind this up. Uh, there's many things we can do, I can ask, uh, you can ask in the question and answer period, but this is a kind of catch-all last slide because I wanted to try to end this talk with some sort of uplift because it's hard to say when you talk about nuclear weapons uh, that uh, it can end happily. There are some people who speculate that Kim Jong-un is a reformer. Now, that might be a stretch. He's certainly not a, a, a Jeffersonian Democrat. We know that. And we're not likely to get a reformer. But we can hope for it, but some people would like to see him become uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping, this, this man here, the top man, who introduced market reforms into China beginning in the late 70s into the 80s and is responsible for sort of China's economic development, this huge explosion of China and its growth. Uh, the second one is uh, there is a, 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 cond, uh, 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 a feeling that maybe he's a Gorbachev and we could have a glass nose of perestroika. I think that's doubtful, but possible. Uh, there is a hope for an evolution in power. There's also a hope for a Deng-style economic reforms. But I have to remind everybody that hope is not a strategy. And so we're left with really just increasing sanctions. We're, we're left with con, uh, condemning them for human rights. And the UN has done a good job on it, incidentally, issuing various reports. And finally, uh, we're, we're left with the kind of feeling that no one really wants the status quo to change on the North Korean Peninsula because it's better to, the known devil, devil than the unknown devil. And there's a real concern that things will be much worse off judging by history is what has happened. And the final ingredient to that is that, and, and we've always considered, and I've done this here, and this is one of the problems with PowerPoint slides, I've isolated Korea and said, oh, it has this nuclear capacity, has missile capacities, it has a uh, concern about, was concerned about fissile material. Oh, that's true. It's all true. But there's one other factor. We have depended on China because China supports North Korea for a lot of reasons. Fraternal Communist Party, the fact is it's very worried about the fact it would be inundated by refugees if a, a regime collapses, or the biggest worry of all is that suddenly North Korea and South Korea are in fact united into some sort of democratic capitalist system. That would give the Chinese a lot of concern, but they would be worried to have the proximity on their own doorstep of a free enterprise system, uh, a system that would believe in democracy and human rights and so on. So that is a real concern. So they're not interested. And what's changed in the dynamic of people who only see North Korea in this isolation is we haven't been paying enough attention to the South China Sea. Down the coast, in fact, the Chinese are moving very aggressively. Uh, in the last two years, 2014, they have managed to take seven of the islands in the Spratly chains and militarize them, build them up, actually reclaim them. What they've done, they've had outcroppings. These aren't even islands. They're rocks 
But at low tide, you can see, they filled them in with sand. Then after they got covered with sand, they built harbors. They built airstrips, and they're militarizing those. And they're trying to deny 12, 5,000 miles out from their coast that there can be freedom of, of, of navigation. The Obama administration has run a couple FUNABs. FUNABs means freedom of navigation operations. And that means we send ships through here and sort of establish the fact that they're not exclusively controlled by China. And that's caused a lot of friction. Second thing that's happened, this is very recently, that the Obama administration has decided to commit to the defense of South Korea a THAAD system. THAAD is a, a missile interceptor system. THAAD actually stands for T-H-A-A-D, and it stands for Terminally High Altitude Aerial Defense. And it's only a defensive weapon, but it has the capacity in its, in its, uh, in, in its uh, radar systems to peer in about 1,500 miles, and if it's enhanced, 2,000 miles into China. And that makes Russia and China very nervous. So that missile system, the FAD system, won't be deployed cleverly enough by the Obama administration to the end of next year. Of course, it won't be in power anymore, so it doesn't have to worry about it. But already the Chinese are very upset about it. And it's increased tension. And a lot of analysts, people who are very smart, follow us daily, have now begun to speak about the inevitability of a war between China and the United States over China's claims. So that makes me think, how does this relate back to North Korea? It relates back by the fact, I don't think we can count on China to sell out North Korea. That's not going to happen. So if we're, we're thinking that's going to happen, we're wrong. So what's in store? Before I open this up for questions, what's in store? Well, the future Hillary Clinton administration has already gone on record by some of its officials saying that it's going to negotiate an agreement with North Korea over its missiles, similar to the agreement that the Obama administration used uh, with, with Iran, the one it just passed a year ago, uh, 2015. And they're trying to enhance that, uh, set it up, build a foundation for that by increasing sanctions on North Korea. And North Korea, of course, deserves these sanctions. These are being promulgated by the Treasury Department under the uh, Patriot Act. And some are retaliation for the fact that the Koreans are, are using cyber attacks and hacking into uh, various areas. You know about the case of how they, they disrupted Sony, uh, the, the entertainment uh, company, for its making of a movie called The Interview, which was a comic comedy, but it's hard to imagine a comedy, in which the, the leader, the supreme leader, would be killed by a couple of interviewers. It, it, but the, the, Chinese, the Koreans didn't take it as a comedy. They took it pretty seriously. They've also managed to hack in to the Bangladesh Central Bank uh, and steal $81 million from its account at the New York Federal Reserve. So they do things like this. So the Treasury Department is, is cracking down on, com on what they call secondary companies, companies that deal with uh, North Korea and beginning to sanction them. This is the same tactics that were used against Iran. And so we have this huge problem. So what comes out of, what is the last line on this? And I'll end with this and I'll open for questions. This is an interesting development. It's not been given much play. And that is the fact 
that they have come up after their last party congress, which just took place, the seventh party congress in Korea in May, and they came out with somebody called the State Commission of Affairs. That is replacing the old National Defense uh, Commission. That was the military. Kim Jong-un's father believed in a Songong policy, which meant the military first. And he put all his eggs in a military basket. His son is a little different. His son had said, we're going to build nuclear weapons, but we're also going to de develop the economy. And you say, OK, what's new? Well, it's the barking dog. Why doesn't the dog bark? The barking dog, the, bark, the reason the dog didn't bark is, well, to me, the missing ingredient is, what happens to the conventional military under the scenario? So the conventional military in North Korea can't be very happy with the fact that Kim Jong-un is going to stress economic development and nuclear weapons. But what about the guys who drive tanks, fly airplanes, and the troops? They're not going to get as much money. So that's why there's some speculation that things are afoot. Now, we don't know yet. We don't have enough evidence. But it is an interesting development. And it's a little bit different for them to do this in a communist system. So this new commission, which will be headed, of course, by Kim Jong-un, the new leader, and will also uh, concentrate on things that are a little bit different. So we're going to have to stay tuned to watch this very clearly. So why don't I stop here and open it up for questions. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.